Zero, ten, nine. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, six, two, one, zero. Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. It is Saturday, November 4th, 2023. I'm Doug, and joined again today after a few... You've had a couple weeks off, huh? Did get a couple weeks off. We finished up some Serpo. What Thank did we do last time? Oh, yeah, we... We, we weren't feeling too well we, that day. We bored people within an inch of their life. <laughs> 300 sightings, 300, 300 deaths on Catalina Island um, in three decades or five decades or since the 1800s or whatever it was. It was reported and, uh, by two sick people. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about um, the book um, and, and the man, um, George Adamski. And um, a, lot, a lot of people know the story, you know. UFO lore. I mean, this is where the, this is part of the history of, we were talking a lot about these days about the, um, I guess I should look to see how we look. Yeah, I think so, right? Um, we're there. Um, we're talking today about the Senate and the, the house and what we're trying to do to get, you know, UFOs and NHIs, non- human intelligences, you know, to the forefront of the public, which I don't know if it's ever really going to happen. Not because I don't believe they're there, but because I just, well, anyway, we won't go into all that. We're going to talk about, you know, what, what started all this, basically. And one of the people that started with is George Adamski, and he's got kind of, we're going to, we're going to start by talking about um, the George the man, the man. The man. And what he did, kind of the history of what he did, then we'll lead into the book. And it talks about some UFO history, which I think a lot, we're talking so much about Tic Tacs and things. I think a lot of people that are new, are get, just getting into it, don't really know the history of how this thing started. It kind of started, and they don't talk about it here, but it, I think it, and it did, it started with the first nuclear testing, you know. And, um, so, uh, to kick it off, George Adamski was born uh, 17 April 1891 in what is now Poland, at the first son of a Polish carpenter, and his wife, who later had two more sons and two daughters. When he was around four years old, the family immigrated to the U.S. and settled in Dunkirk, uh, New York. He left school after the eighth grade, but received private tuition and training in Tibet as a youth. From thir 1913 to 1916... Don't move that while I'm reading. Okay. <laughs> so much fun. I can barely see as it is. Served, okay. Dempsey served in the U.S. Army and from 1918 to 1919 in the U.S. National Guard. In 1917, he married Mary Shimbursky, who died of cancer in 1954. Adamski first settled in Los Angeles, California around 1928, where he founded the Royal Order of Tibet in 1932, from with which he moved to Laguna Beach in 1934 and taught a philosophy of life which he called universal law he moved to valley center near palomar mountain in 1940 where he soon became known as a spotter speaker and writer about craft and visitors from space palomar mountain remained his operating base until he moved back to the coast first to carlsbad and finally to vista california he died of heart failure on 23 april 1965 while staying with friends at Silver Spring, Maryland. That's not yeah. fun. For many years, you see where the 100% that thing was says 100? Can you make that a little bit bigger? Okay, keep going. Okay. See what happens. It might get too big. Okay, there we go. Okay. So for... There you go. All right. For many years, episodes in George Damsky's early life were shrouded in mystery. But recent research has brought forward new documentation and archival materials that are combined here to shed further light on what was by all means an extraordinary life. Not only for his experiences and the controversy they aroused, 
but equally for his determination and his unforgiving dedication and commitment to the service that he had taken upon himself. Well, there's no um, incontrovertible proof. There is circumstantial evidence that he maintained a high government or military contacts and met with President Kennedy in late 61 on behalf of his contacts from space. From space. There, well, there is, con, you know, there is people that think <laughs> that he, not he necessarily, but Kennedy, you know, did have contacts with, you know, extraterrestrials. Uh, mm. You know, that, that con- That's amazing. Yeah, well, that won't even go there right <laughs> today. <laughs> However, there is... There is no lack of evidence that the significance of his mission rang true with many officials and dignitaries around the world. Not only was he received by Queen Juliana of the Netherlands in 1959, by Pope John 23, I have to do the Roman numeral math, in 1963, and various other persons of high social standing. He could also count on the interest and support of the likes of Consul Alberto Perego in Italy, Danish Air Force Major Hans Peterson in Denmark, Desmond Leslie in England, and Professor S.K. Maitra in India, among various others. Did you notice my shirt? You know, I've seen the shirt. We have to discuss the, the shirt. <laughs> yeah, we have to talk about the shirt because the shirt's from Rain Spooner. And so I have to mention that. You know, it's mm-hmm. got the, this one's an Hawaiian shirt. It's got a. Uh, you know, some grays, uh, vacation in Hawaii, surfing, and, you know, hanging out. Looking, on, looking up hula girl skirts. Looking at, is he looking up a hula girl skirt? You know he's trying. Oh, wow, that's weird. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'll have to be careful about where I wear this. No. We saw Matt last night at uh, the Y down on Fulton Avenue in Sacramento, My our co-host, our, you know, regular co-host, Matt Whiting. And uh, we saw him perform, playing guitar down there with... Uh, Veronica Lucia, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really good, really good showing. So um, at the same time, um, onward with uh, Mr. Adamski. We got his picture there. On he the looks corner. like a movie star. Yeah, he's very distinguished looking. Large eyebrows. Uh, yeah, they, they kinda, grew him big back then. Kind of got the Polly Walnuts thing going. Yeah, and that the flying saucer that he's holding up, he says that's a picture of one that he actually took. Oh, okay. Um it's actually looks the reason I came about this story, and we're gonna jump off the uh it kinda looks like the German I mean and they call them the uh Hanabu German uh flying saucers. Mm-hmm. And um that's why this struck me as like a you know, anyway, well as we go through we'll talk more about the history of the flying saucer and that kind of thing. Um so uh, he main, maintained to have it being available to the public the first and third Sunday of the month and at his residence on the slopes of Palomar Mountain and later in Vista, California, whenever he was not lecturing elsewhere. Wow. As the timeline in the following pages shows, he worked untiringly his whole life doing manual labor from a young age through to his final days as a teacher and lecturer when he continued to write, publish, answer questions, travel, lecture, give interviews, and make new plans to share his information and educate his fellow humans. Knowing that the fees for his talks were just enough to cover his expenses, his Swiss co-worker Lou Zinstag said, George Adamski was a man who did not relate to money to the point that she felt he was sure he was reluctant to touch it. The allegations about his motives are left without basis and instead imply more about the <coughs> motives of the worldview of his detractors. Hmm. 1940 to 1960, from obscurity to world fame. In March of 1940, Adamski moves to a property along Star Road 76 in Valley Center, California, about nine miles from where the Palomar Observatory is under construction. His aim is to establish a spiritual retreat, Kashmir, L.A., according to a report about his... Kashmir Law. Oh, that's what you wanted to call it? Kashmir Law? Yeah, Kashmir Law. Oh, I thought it was because it was in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) According to a study about his move in the Santa Ana Register of 26 January, an important part of study equipment to be installed at Kashmir Law is a 40-inch portable 
Cassegrainian telescope to be constructed by the Tinsley Laboratories at Berkeley. In the event, it seems funds only allowed for the acquisition of a 15-inch telescope. Darn it. Didn't have enough enough funding yet. Volunteers as an air raid. In 1941, he volunteered as an air raid warden for his locality when uh, the U.S. entered World War II after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And um, in 1944, Damsky and his group moved closer to Palomar Mountain along the Star Route, where his longtime associate, Alice K. Wells, sets up a roadside cafe, Palomar Gardens. According to Charlotte Blodgett, each member of the group shared a manual labor that went into the effort. And since, in the war's aftermath, heavy restrictions were still in effect regarding materials, anything available had to serve. Yeah, Charlotte brought the money. I mean, I read a little bit about this. She was kind of the financier of this endeavor. Yeah. In 1944, at Palomar Gardens, a small observatory was erected to house the 15-inch telescope. Would have been way better if it was 40. Yeah. Designed in a way which enabled Adamski to study the skies for hours on end. It was portable, though, so they could bring it. And, uh, they could take want. it out. Yeah, they could take it to other places. In 1946, he published The Possibility of Life on Other Planets, in which he posited that the form of physical life elsewhere may be so fine as to be almost invisible to our sight, limited as our sight is to this particular plane of manifestation. That's deep. Yeah, I mean, he, there's speculation. I mean, we'll talk... This will come up a little later on, but, you know, it's an interdimensional. These things are interdimensional. They're not. That's the reason why we can't really. They, they, you can see them on radar, then all of a sudden you can't. So it's weird. That's why we talk about it. So uh, 9 October in 46, during a meteor shower, Adamski and some friends see a huge cigar-shaped mothership. Witness also over nearby San Diego by hundreds of others. This sighting, a giant spaceship, was also reported on the radio news and the Los Angeles Daily News. You see the sun there before yeah. you. In 1947, on June 24th, commercial pilot Kenneth Arnold reports seeing a string of nine circular type, I remember the story, yeah. circular type objects over Mount Rainier, Washington State. On 8 July, the evening editions of the Roswell Daily Record and other newspapers report that, according to eyewitness reports, had crashed around June 14th. These events signaled the start of what became known as the Flying Saucer Area, epitomized in this newspaper front page of 19, July 9, 1947. In 1947, Adamski also takes his first photographs of a flying saucer as it passes across the moon. It's interesting because, the, I mean, the depiction of the Arnold uh, flying saucers. Um, they aren't really saucers. They're kind of like, bo- they almost look like boomerangs. Yeah. They weren't, that. they didn't look like saucers, but that turned, that coined the phrase anyway, um, as the other sightings came about, you know, throughout the years. In 1949, two members of the Electronic Marine Laboratory at Point Loma near San Diego invite Damsky to join in on the spaceship photographing in order to collect as much information as possible. <laughs> night after night, I stayed outdoors watching the heavens, and steaming cups of hot coffee were incapable of warming me. Once I caught such a cold that it took me many weeks to recover, but still I persisted. Um, note, in a statement made in 1988, when Adamski had been uh, the butt of ridicule for decades, and scientists could not afford to be in any way connected with him, one of the visitors, Miss, Mr. Gene L. Bloom, denied Adamski's account of the meeting in the Flying Saucer Review, um, Volume 34, Number 3. 33 years earlier, he had only denied some of the details in Adamski's account. So some of them, I guess, he agreed hmm. with. From October of 1949, Adamski is invited to talk about the reality of spaceships as a guest speaker for service clubs such as the Rotary in Southern California. Um, it's a note that George Adamski gave many more talks and interviews that are included on this um, in his book. Um, those listed are merely indicative of his many public appearances from 1953 onward. Uh, in 1949, he published Pioneers of Space, detailing his out-of-body visits to the Moon, Mars, and Venus. In private correspondence, he later explained, 
how one may venture from one place to another while his physical is in one place and he is in another. That is why I have written this book. That was a letter to Miss Emma Martinelli um, in August of 1950. Yeah, the it's interesting because that's part of, you know, what this government is experimenting with this, you know, the psychological stuff that, you know, that they can actually, there's been reports mm -hmm. that people can actually see from the past. One guy said he was able to go into this psychological, you know, session mm -hmm. and he can see Martians from the past alive on Mars mm -hmm. and they were people they look they were just big people large people and then he could see that so it's I mean this is I don't know if this is kind of that you know there's only certain people that can do that you know it's not like us or we right. you know we can't do it have, have you tried I've not tried <laughs> okay, no. just checking. not trying to leave my body no okay in 1950 he publishes his first article about flying saucers in fate magazine September of 1950 the sequences below taken uh, May 6, 1950 is used uh, to accompany Adamski's second article about the photos of sightings in Fate magazine in July 1951. You can't see it here, but we can see it on the the screen. There's a put my little cursor there. That, that's Adamski there holding his flying saucer picture. But he's got another picture here of um, that's a uh, the sequence of the moon from 3:30 to 4 a.m. on May 6 shows a strange object suddenly appearing over its face. Note small shadow cast by the object appearing in photograph on the right. So there's the object, and it kind of casts a shadow on the moon. So I don't know. <coughs> That's kind of weird. Kind of weird and exciting at the same mm -hmm. time. There's the 15-inch telescope. And then uh, there you go. Okay. November 20, 20th of 1952, there was an encounter with Orthon from Venus who steps out of a flying saucer that landed in the Coxcomb Mountain Hills in the Colorado desert in Desert Center, California, and telepathically engages with Adamski as witnessed by George and Betty Will Williamson, Alfred and Betty Bailey, Alice Wells, and Lucy McGinnis. Hmm. There's a picture. Yeah, and he's sitting by his telescope. And the thing about the witnesses later on recanted their story, but... Um, there's some speculation that they were coerced and it, that they actually did see that, mm -hmm. but they were uh, coerced in the, uh, um, into denying that they saw it, you know, which is unfortunate. The thing, the Orthian is a, looks like a tall, blonde-haired human, you know. That's what people on Venus look like? Yeah, yeah, the Venusians, mm -hmm. they're, they're Orthian, so... 24 November 1952, the first newspaper report about the uh, desert encounter appears in the Phoenix Gazette. In a press conference in November 55, Adamski explains, I will tell you honestly that I, too, would not have come out as much as I have had it not been for the first contact with the four people who were with me, Williamson and the others, Mrs. Williamson and Mr. and Mrs. Bailey, who went on to Phoenix, Arizona, gave the story to the Gazette. Once that came out, I was on the spot completely, and there was nothing else to do. And once you stick your neck out, as you might as well go ahead with it. Right so there. they went and told his story. So then, yeah, they was, told the story. He didn't really tell the story. And now he's, yeah, stuck. Now he's stuck, kind of stuck with it. It's like he didn't want he didn't want the notoriety. Yeah. You know, or the money. Well, he got it. I don't yeah, know anything about the it, money, but he got. Yeah, I don't know if there's any money involved. Probably not. Um, in October of 1953, Adamski's account of the encounter is combined with a book about the history of E.T. visitations written by Anglo-Irish author Desmond Leslie and published simultaneously in the U.K., U.S.A., and Canada as Flying Saucers Have Landed. This signals the start of Adamski's public mission to inform humanity of the reality of the visitors from space. Yeah, and there's the same saucer that he's holding on to. December 13th, 1953 takes the most iconic photographs of the flying saucer. A Venusian scout ship appeared over Palomar Gardens. Um, 18 February onward, uh, hotel clerk, 426 South Hill Street in Los Angeles is where 
And Dansky usually goes to meet his contacts from Venus and Mars. You meet at a hotel? Yeah, I don't even make an appointment. Okay. You know? Do they get they a get, room? They get a room. <laughs> they get a room. <laughs> a conference room. You head to your conference room. Uh-huh. Together, they then drive the car into the desert where a scout ship is waiting to pick them up. These encounters are described in Inside the Spaceships. That'll be the next book we do. Oh, right? okay. After we, we haven't even started this book yet. But oh, wow. we'll, uh, yeah, this is just the precursor to oh, what Lord. we're going to talk about in this book. We're going to have a couple episodes on this. In 1954, Adamski and his group moved the cafe to nearby Palomar Terraces. Yeah, they build a cafe. They start selling burgers. The- the alien milk, cafe, milkshake. huh? Yeah. In March, on March 28th of 1954, following the success of Flying Saucers Have Landed, Adamski is invited to give a talk for the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. Is that what MUFON is? I, I don't know if MUF, that I don't know when the actual MUFON was, was the, uh, had started. At but. the Masonic Temple in Detroit, which draws 4,700 people. It says something about the Masons, though. In 1954, he suffered a heart attack due to the strain resulting from the massive public and media interest. Invitations for lectures and correspondence and and declines an invitation from the UK on doctor's orders what would have been his first lecture tour in Europe. In a letter dated September 4th, he writes, I am indeed sorry that the doctors have forbidden me to come to England this year. Through continuous going day and nights as I have been, my health gave way and I was ordered to rest for at least a year. Oh, man. Wow. Had That's to rest a long... for a year. We have COVID? <laughs> June uh, through August 54, Desmond Leslie visits Adamski for three months during the summer while they're working on Inside the Spaceships. Um, in July 1954, Mary, his wife, Mary Shimberly, she died. That's sad. Yeah, that must have been tough on her. He was on the road a lot. Yeah. 7th and 8th of August, 1954, one of the first UFO conventions in California is held at the Skyline Lodge on the slopes of Palomar Mountain. The Flying Saucer Forum featured talks by Adam George Adamski and fellow contactees Daniel Fry and Truman Betherum, as well as Desmond Leslie, the co-author of the book. The uh, The convention draws well over a thousand people. Wow. It's a big I mean, party. It's, it's, big, it's big stuff. In 1954, he gives his first talk in Mexico, where he meets with Salvador Villanueva Medina, who had an experience with space invaders. Visitors. Visitors. (laughs) I'm going to play space invaders. The video game. (laughs) Space visitors in northern Mexico in August of 1953. Here he also meets Senorita Maria Cristina de Hueda Rueda. I don't speak Spanish. Cristina de Rueda. Rueda. You don't know. I do. You do not. You're making shit up. The Spanish translator of Flying Saucers of Landed, who remains a loyal benefactor over the years and whom he visits almost every year during the winter months. Well, yeah, because you get to go to Mexico in the winter when it's nice that's, and warm. That's what I'm saying. You know, I don't know. It's uh, it's like a cult. You know, it's kind of weird. It's kind of cult-like. Yeah. You know, although, you know, I'm totally into They have it, something in common. That's... Yeah, it's well. They have a shared. Yeah, they, they have a shared interest, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, MUFON. It's like everybody has a, a shared interest, but it's uh, it's about something that is not that we hope is for real. You know, in '55, inside the spaceships published by, there's some hard names: Abelard Schumann, in the U.S. and Nelson Foster and Scott Lemon in Canada. The U.K. edition published by Arco. Follows in 1956. In his Science of Life course, Lesson 11, 1964, he explicitly distinguishes between his travels and consciousness as detailed in Pioneers in Sp- of Space in 1949 and My Trips in Spacecraft Taken Bodily. That's interesting. That would be a big difference. One of them you can just lay in your bed yeah, and your brain leaves. Yeah. And the other one you actually have to physically get in a ship. And who knows if you're going to come back. At least you, you know you're probably going to go. If you're consciousness, but, you know, who knows? Bad things can happen. It's, it's interesting be, mind. because that today that is a, that, you know, that people talk about that being a reality today where you just, we, that, it, that people, things or whatever from other planets, entities, don't even have to be in spaceship. They mm-hmm. can just project right. to Earth. 
and they could be here. You mm -hmm. know, they're like you said, they're laying in bed and mm -hmm. they're hanging around here doing whatever. They almost seem like, and where they talk about, you know, uh, aberrations, ghosts, and things. You know, there's discussion now, and I'm seeing it more and more that that isn't really dead. You know, dead people. That's kind of them being here. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Either way, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> April 3rd of 1955, he gives a 30-minute lecture at George Van Tassel's, George Van Tassel, what a great name, spacecraft conven convention at Giant Rock in Landers, California. Seeing how the public is increasingly drawn to psychics and mystics who claim to receive messages from space entities with fanciful names and designations, the convention's organizer, George Van Tassel, among them, Adamski decides not to attend gathering of this kind again. Space people use neither position nor name to identify themselves. These are personality, nor do they ever prophesy our future. So he's kind of distancing himself from this kind of thing. Because, yeah. well, now we're getting into the psychics and stuff that yeah, he's... That's yeah, part, that's outside my realm of, right. you know. In 56 and 57, late in 56, my colleagues and I were spending a few months in Chapala... Jalisco, Mexico, in route, he films a huge translucent spacecraft hovering above a banana plantation from the highway <coughs> near San Blas. Blas. San Blas. In June 1957, he announces the establishment of an international network, the Get Acquainted Program, or some people say the Georgia Damsky Program, <laughs> uh, aimed at bringing citizens of each nation into closer united friendship. We could use that today. We could. A lot. <laughs> Without discrimination or divisions of any kind. That is kind of a guy's concept. Mm -hmm. A refreshing concept. It'll never happen, but whatever. In October, the first Cosmic Science Bulletin with questions and answers is published and edited by Lucy McGinnis. There's George right there. Looking oh, he handsome. He looks happy. Yeah. Or dapper. In June 1958, in Cosmic Science Series Part 1, Number 1, Part 4, Adamski writes how, on the first and third Sunday of each month, between the hours of 1 and 4 p.m., it is my custom to talk with the public at my home, give a lecture on topics of interest, and answer questions. He follows this custom, which he began in the early days of Palomar Gardens throughout his life, whenever he isn't traveling or lecturing elsewhere. Wow. The latter half of August of 58, a lecture tour of Washington State. It's interesting. It seems like he's just volunteering. I mean, I don't know if he's getting any funding for this. Well, hopefully he's getting enough to live on, but yeah, doesn't sound like he was sounds like charging he was, for yeah. anything. In a note on the last page of Cosmic Science Series Number 1, Part 5, Adamski writes, Since the response to our inquiry in the previous volume about continuing the questions and answers has not been sufficient to warrant the financial costs involved, this will be the last booklet published. The bulletin continues as the Cosmic Science Newsletter on regular U.S. letter size sheets. What's the matter? I'm suggesting that. And we've got telepathy, the, the cosmic or universal language. Wow. Part one. Um, in 58, he publishes Telepathy, the Cosmic or Universal Language. Uh, January 13th of 1959, he leaves for New Zealand on his world lecture tour where he is invited to speak to countries where GAP chapters have been or were being set up. So this thing actually got started with the people of each country talking to each other. In eight, May of 18, 19, 1959, <laughs> Audience with Queen Juliana and Prince Bernard of the Netherlands at Sosdijk yeah, yeah, Palace <laughs> makes headlines around the world. I think I, I think I nailed it. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that's exactly how they would say it. And there, he, there he is again. Polar Look, walnuts. Looking cool. Uh, June 18th of 1959, he returns home from Europe, cutting short his world tour on account of poor health, with lectures in Switzerland... Italy, Austria, and Denmark being canceled. Adamski published at least one more book, Flying Saucer's Farewell, in 1961, and continued to lecture widely. So it looks like he's got three. Looks like he did about three books. At a press conference in March 1965, he predicated, predicted, predicted <laughs> that a large fleet of flying saucers would soon descend on Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, Adamski wouldn't be there to greet them. 
had they actually arrived. He died that April at age 74. Actually, there was an incident where there were um, a gaggle of mm -hmm. flying saucers that were over Washington, D.C., but it was much later. Well, because they told him, I'm sure. He talked to them. Since his death, Adamski's critics have tended to portray him as a harmless crackpot, a small-time con artist, or perhaps a bit of both. Others, like J. Allen Hynek, took a somewhat dimmer view, accusing Adamski's and others like him of discrediting the entire field of UFO research. Well, Hynek was Project Blue Book, right. and so he's, there's some, well, yeah, what ha it's That's funny that, you know, it's like, well, you're doing UFOs wrong, and you're doing <laughs> UFOs wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, you're doing UFOs, and that, you know. How dare you? Yeah. Uh, author... Author Arthur, they should not have Author authors Arthur. named Arthur C. Clark had made the same point years earlier, saying that Adamski and co-author Leslie did a real disservice by obscuring the truth and scaring away serious researchers from a field that may be of great importance. I don't see how that would scare away regular researchers. It seems it would bring it to light. Ego versus ego. But Adamski stuck to his story to the end, including the upbeat but somehow ominous message he delivered in Flying Saucers of Landed. My most urgent message and plea to every person who reads it is, let us be friendly, let us recognize and welcome the men from other worlds. They are here among us. I mean, the underlying message here is that he wanted peace. Right. He you know? He wasn't, I mean... He did have an ego the way he's... Oh, sure he did. And he's opening his home. Oh, you know, everybody come and, and Yeah, but we're talking talk. about... Let's all talk about this subject. Right. You know, I mean... And we, in a time where it wasn't popular to talk about this subject, quite frankly. Right. I mean, you don't... You're a crack, like they said. You're a crackpot. Or now we can talk about it and wear shirts with pictures on them and... You put things on your, you know, put little aliens on your car or whatever. And nobody really thinks much about it. Right. You know, the occasional person is just doesn't care. Right. They're kind of like you. It's kind of like, I don't know. There could be something up there. but I People are still afraid to talk, though. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they, yes. Not people, everybody is as free as I am about talking about it. I mean, you've you've met people who are... Yeah, who, who have had experiences who, that don't want to talk publicly about it. But yeah. they talk to me about it. They talk about it. Right, but, but they don't go to their they don't go to their place of business and talk about it. No, right. you're you are correct. And they they would prefer that nobody important yeah. know that this this fact about them. Well, you know how many people have, uh, you, I talk to you from time to time about the people that agree to come on the show and then at the last minute they get cold feet. Right. And even though we can do this anonymously, and I'll just their family advise them. Yeah, their family advise them. It wouldn't be good for we their will be business or their career. Or they won't talk to them yeah. anymore or whatever. But you know, it, I mean, I have had a few of those where they've backed mm -hmm. out. So, in the book, chapter one is what flying saucers are not. What flying sa What saucers are not? Hmm. Ever since the cliche flying saucer was coined, the greatest and most Anyway, we finished out the... That's the, his biography. The biography. Now we know about the man. We got the picture. So we know kind of who we're talking about. This is written in the first person. So when we say I, that's George. You're George. And You're I'm George, George, too. We're all George. Ever since the cliche, Flying Saucer was coined, the greatest and most exciting mystery of our age has been automatically reduced to the level of a music hall joke. Aww. <laughs> The comics of vaudeville and the comedians of state and science banded together most successfully to encourage humanity in its oldest and easiest method of escape, to laugh at what it does not understand. Always. That's what we do. From then on, anyone who said, I have seen a flying saucer, or worse, I believe in flying saucers, was considered a bit of a leg fuller or some kind of crank. Despite evidence to the contrary, and there is enough of it to fill many volumes, there is still a widespread notion, hazy and ill-defined, as, as are all popular notions, that flying saucers are some kind of American joke, a newspaper stunt, or the result of something not quite nice. On top of this comes an even hazier reassurance that the mystery has already been cleared up, that the skies have been purged of those ungodly objects, and there is nothing more to worry about. Nothing. 
For this latter notion, we can thank those semi-scientists. I like that. Semi-scientists. Semi-scientists. And self-appointed experts who have simply failed to study the facts. Too many glib pontifications have been issued to the faithful by those who should know better. Scores of neatly parceled explanations have been doled out, which barely cover a few of the facts. But to say, as their perpetrators say, that they cover all the cases on record is a flagrant untruth for which a higher justice may or may not forgive them. Let me say at the outset that I have devoted the last two and a half years solely to the investigation of this phenomenon, that I have studied thousands of cases and read reports, both ancient and modern, that I have studied with an unbiased mind things that seemed possible and things that seemed impossible, and that I feel as qualified to speak as any expert who, after a few weeks or even days of research, calmly announces the once-and-for-all solution and returns thence to his normal activities. Yeah, I don't think that's been done on this subject. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever said, I know exactly they, they, what we've seen and what we haven't it's seen. So they make it, so it's like it clears it up and then it gets muddied. That's, That's been happening like that since the beginning. Uh, let me say also that if I write of the flying saucer mystery in a light or easy style, it is not because I do not seriously mean what I say. On the contrary, I take flying saucers extremely seriously, but I deplore pedantry and like the ancient Toltecs, I find the serious things of life a cause for joy and pleasure rather than for pompous gloom. Oh, wow. That's what's, a great band name. What's pedantry? <laughs> Do you know what that means? Like pettiness. Pettiness. And telling, you know, saying that you're right. And lastly, though I would prefer to use the ancient names for the sky disks, such as Cars Celestial, Vimanas, and Fiery Chariots, I use the modern abomination. <laughs> wow. Flying saucers throughout this volume, merely to avoid confusion. Well, it's not flying saucers anymore. It's UAPs. Yeah, they've, they've U come up with many names, but Vimanas and Fiery Ch I like Fiery Chariots. That's Badass. a great name. That's a good band name, too. Oh, yeah. I know. They're it's better than, what's the they're, dolphin one? They're opening, they're opening for pompous gloom. Um, <laughs> dolphin. Killed by a killed dolphin. Killed by a dolphin. Love that. That's a great band name. You got a, you got a sticker somewhere. I do. It's a, Yeah, I got it. I don't know if I'm going to put it on my car or not. I'll put it on your car. No, you're not putting it on <laughs> I'm too old for that. I don't know who they are. I would like to devote... You met the guy. You met yeah, him I last met, night. I met the guy. He's he's lived less time than I've worked for the state. That's, for, <laughs> that's horrible. I would like to devote little time to proving or disproving the reality of these wonderful flying objects. In fact, I would like to get right down to essentials without further ado... But for those who have heard of saucers only by hearsay or read of them in the popular Sunday papers, that would prove a little unsatisfactory. So I shall dedicate the first part of this book to an account of what has happened up to the time of writing. Yeah, and he's, he will be covering some of the incidents. I've all heard all of these, and they're, okay. they're great stories. Let me say once again that although I quote less than 200 incidents, these have been selected from nearly 2,000 cuttings, reports, articles, manuscripts, and ancient documents. I want an ancient document. I would too. Supplied to me by, somebody has them, supplied to me by some, by kind helpers from many countries, this side <laughs> of the Iron Curtain. To quote them all would require a volume the size of a city telephone directory. For anybody who doesn't know, there used to be something called a phone the book. A phone book. <laughs> We haven't seen one of those in a while. Yeah, thankfully. For the past 18 months, barely a single day has gone by without flying saucers. He doesn't like that term. Why is he using it? Being reported no, somewhere in the world. No, he says he is using it. I know, but it's, I, don't, I think he should have not used it. With um, flaming chariots? Yes. He's going to refer to his flaming chariots yes, throughout the book. the FCs. <laughs> but I am being modest. On some days, there have been as many as 10 different sightings in different places. And if a thing is seen daily, week after week, month after month, by ordinary people in free countries, then it follows that the thing in question must surely exist. Yeah, and it's more than that now, more than 10 a day. MUFON has just got the directory. I don't know how many there was, but there's tons. Wow. It's us, Florida, and Texas at the most. It's interesting. <laughs> it's shocking. 
yeah, there was a general one time that said it was those, I don't know, wasn't those states, but there was another state mm-hmm. that had the most at the time. It was in the 50s or 60s. And he says, yeah, I look at the alcohol consumption in that state. It's really high. Yeah. yeah it's no higher there than it is anywhere else. So. Wisconsin is the highest, I think. Is it really? It's that cold. was winters. It's cold, yeah. Until it was winters, it's yeah. Cold. Do you remember this amusing story? It came out in, uh, do you remember this? Uh, uh, June of 1947, three days before Arnold's experience over Mount Rainier, a man named Dahl was out in a Tacoma Harbor Patrol boat near Maury Island. He looked up and saw six large discs about 2,000 feet above him. Five of them were slowly circling one that seemed to have difficulties. Slowly they sank to within 500 feet of of the sea without a sound or a whisper. Then suddenly there was a loud boom from the central disk and out fell a light and a dark metal object. Fragments landed in the water near the island causing a loud hissing noise, whereupon the whole flight rose and shot off to sea. Three days later, Maury Island was visited and layers of slag-like substance were found there. Reports circulated that dark and light-colored metal discs were among the droppings. Air Intelligence was brought in and announced ex-cathedra, although I don't know what that means, through the vocal organs of a major Sanders that the metal was just slag. That must be a debunking yeah. thing. Um, is it UFO poop? Yeah. Neither the major nor doll seemed to have noticed that slag. Cinders, blue ice, jelly-like stuff, and clinker have been recorded as arriving in large quantities on this planet in utterly unexplained circumstances for the last 300 years. With the authority derived from one's officer position, there came a variation. Then came a variation. Experienced airmen began to see them. Um, back to Maury Island, because they're jumping off Maury Island, right? It would, uh, to expound on that, um, that uh, story, the pieces of slag hit the boat. There was a boat out there that uh, directly observed the incident. Um, the They dropped these pieces on the boat, killed the dog. The kid broke the kid's arm that was on the boat. Um, it got up to the shore. The um, uh, Air Force sent in a B-25 from Hamilton Air Force Base, which was, it's down, it's now, now closed, but it was in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay. So they send in two pilots and two crewmen there to collect these pieces of, you know, they wanted to get the pieces of slag. The ship that was, and they didn't, there was others, I think there was three or four of these flying saucers. One was in distress, and it was kind of wobbly, and that's the one that was shooting out the pieces of the slag substance. So it finally righted itself and flew off. But the B-25, there was a box, somebody collected a box of the slag that they wanted to bring back. Um, so the, they get the box, they load the box on the B-25. The B-25, uh, all of a sudden explodes on the way back. It doesn't quite make it out of Washington. It blows up. Um, one of the crewmen escaped, um, and parachuted out. I mean, it was, uh, the pilot, co-pilot got killed. And then one of the crewmen got killed. One survived. He ended up being a uh, fry cook in Nevada somewhere. Oh, wow. And they can't, um, they're, and I'm always saying, well, why didn't we ever talk to this guy? Right. He's probably dead now, you know, because it happened so long ago. But <coughs> that story was, they, he didn't probably, this came out probably after he was dead. He didn't right. know about all these things, but it was a really weird, in fact, one of those new, UFO hunter things. They went out to try to find the pieces of the, you know, the. Mm-hmm. They of course removed more, most of the B twenty five because at that time that would have been technology that we didn't want out, even though right. by today's standards it's a nothing. But um, and they wanted to find the slag. They more wanted to find the box right. of slag, and they never did. So anyway, just thought before because he jumps right out of that, and I thought yeah. as I read through, I go, well, I got to tell the rest of that story. That was a good story. Then came a variation experience. Uh, airmen began to see them. Two airline pilots, Adams and Anderson, were flying their DC-3 uh, 130 miles from uh, Memphis to Little Rock on the night of uh, March 31st, 1950, when a huge glowing flying saucer zoomed down at terrific speed. 
to investigate them. And I, my thought when I read this was that it must have came out later where they were pulling flight statuses of pilots. Because mm-hmm. in the early, in the 50s, they were, oh, yeah, I just saw a flying saucer. Right. And it became, later on, it was, now, if you reported it, all of a sudden, you're not flying. Right. It's like you're crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but before that, they're, you're, we're going to find here that they've actually, they did. it wasn't happening in the early days. On the central cupola, cupola, I never know how to pronounce that, there was a bright blue, white flashing light, either a signal or part of the propelling mechanism. And on the lower side, the airline pilots observed a row of eight or ten brightly, brilliantly lighted portholes. They thought they were portholes, but admitted that they could have been vents through which some kind of powerful energy was flowing. I've been a skeptic all my life, um, said one of the crew members, Adams, in his report. And what can you do when you see something like that? We were both flabbergasted. Both pilots were slightly blinded by the glare. It was the strongest blue-white blue, blue light I've ever seen, said Adams. Something just as bright but quite different in construction was seen by Eastern Airline pilots Childs and Witted early in July of 1948 on a flight near Montgomery, Alabama. A large aerial submarine three times the size of a B-29 came alongside and circled their craft. Oh, that's big. Yeah. It was torpedo-shaped and glowed all over with a weird dark blue light. It's entry torpedo-shaped. I mean, that's like the Tic Tac, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the Tic Tac thing. That's bizarre. Um, there was double row of ports or vents along the side from which came an unearthly white light. After inspecting them for some moments, the thing suddenly let out a sheet of flame 50 feet long turned up its nose at an abrupt angle and shot off at about 700 to 1,000 miles per hour, rocking the sedate DC-3 with its mighty blast. This is where I kind of have a problem. There shouldn't That's, be flames. There's no flames. They don't get flames? No, you know. It's get, not like a jet car. Or it's something else, or it's something earthly that's, um, you know, that breathes oxygen and, you know, has uses propulsion of that type. I don't. I'm not going with You're the. Not going with the flame. Nah, I'm not big on that, but it's, it's, it's I don't know. I'm not going with flying saucer necessarily. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's something we built that we you know, looked like a flying saucer, and that was the only way we could put the you know the propulsion in it. Right. You'd think we wouldn't you know fly it at our people though. Earlier still, nine flying saucers in loose formation were seen by Captain E. Smith of United Airlines, eight minutes flying time away from Boise, Idaho, on July 4th of 1947. Smith and his co-pilot, Ralph Stevens, saw the disc silhouette against the late evening sky and at, give me words, first thought they were aircraft. Give me words. Give me my words. Notice, please, that they were silhouetted. Fireballs, illusions, and refractions of light do not produce dark silhouettes against the evening or any other sky. Four more saucers joined the group, giving the two pilots and their stewardesses time to observe them thoroughly. They were flat and roundish, they said afterwards, and larger than ordinary aircraft. I like the fact that he's kind of doing research. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's where there's the government doing the research and there's this guy just kind of laying it. George is just laying it out. Yeah. A huge round disc flying on its edge came alongside a Chicago-bound plane on the night of April 27, 1950. I've got one. Captain Adikes, Adikes, the airline pilot. Adikes. You don't know. The airline pilot said it looked like a giant wheel. It was very smooth and streamlined and glowed evenly with a bright red color as if it were heated stainless steel. It appeared to fly on edge like a wheel going down a highway. That's really, it was intelligently controlled either by repulse mechanism or by thinking beings. For each time a dick tried to bring the plane nearer, the object turned away from him, keeping perfect distance until it decided it had seen enough of the cosmic, of the comic terrestrial contraption oh, lumbering wow. along at a mere 200 miles an hour. <laughs> You're going too slow. And shot off at a sudden burst of speed, zooming down to 1,500 feet, where it passed over a place called South Bend and disappeared in the distance. So he's given them the UFO's disdain. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they have disdain for our pie, our people. Ah, it's such bad te- <coughs> old technology and bad technology. Then came the tragedy. Red glow in the clouds over Godman Field, Kentucky. A disc the size of the Pentagon. Holy crap. Lurking silently above a fighter base. A construction dwarfing the Queen Mary, supported by dull orange flames that lit up the cloud base and caused Captain Mantell of the U.S. Air Force to be dispatched in his tiny pursuit plane to investigate. Yeah, he had a must. He's flew in a must. I know this story, too. When Mantell found it, his voice came over the radio full of excitement. It was immense, he said, a colossal <laughs> metallic thing, 500 to 1,000 feet in diameter and cruising at 250 miles per hour. He was going to try to overtake it. As soon as he sighted it, or sensed him, the giant began climbing at 400 miles per hour. It accelerated faster than any jet, and Mantell went streaking up in pursuit. The next news of Mantell was that the wreckage of his plane had been found in tiny pieces, scored by peculiar deep lines as if he got into a shower of some terribly powerful, unexplainable something, as though he had flown into the tremendous exhaust stream, or worse, against which no terrestrial metal could survive. Ex cathedra spoke authority. Another debunking thing, term, mm-hmm. I guess. First, Mantell had been chasing the planet Venus. Mm-hmm. Will some kind of illusionist kindly explain how the planet Venus could appear at a disk 500 feet, as a disk 500 feet across, going at 200 <coughs> miles per hour, afterwards climbing rapidly and emitting orange flames? Later, we read of a new official explanation that Mantell had hit a skyhook meteorological balloon and crashed. There we go with the balloon Those damn again. balloons. Well, say he had. Would it tear his plane to pieces? I think not. I'm quite willing for anyone who will pay my expenses to pilot a fighter plane through a skyhook balloon any time of the day or night and observe the results without very much fear of hurting myself. But when it has a skyhook ever cruised at 250 miles per hour or risen sharply at 400 miles per hour with orange flames, etc., etc., into the bargain. But officially, Mantell had chased the planet Venus. Why the hell would he chase the planet Venus? Metamorphosed later into a skyhook balloon, <laughs> and thus a loss met his death. We're, we're fighting the same fights today <laughs> with this stuff. Another theory followed about a mirage or magnification caused by layers of hot air or cold air, or something no one knows anything at all about. But in that case, why doesn't this sometimes magnify the sun, distort the moon, stretch out the stars? Why always pick on poor old Venus? Poor Venus. This Venus idea makes it very hard to understand a sighting at White Sands Rocket Testing Ground, New Mexico, where a flying saucer was tracked by radar and found to be cantering along at a mere 18,000 miles per hour. This is, we've had ra- radar echoes from the moon, but not yet from Venus, so far as I'm aware. The um, back to Mantell, what so he was flying his uh, Mustang, and they said that he one of the things was they discovered, I think, that he you could I at 15,000 feet, he wasn't on oxygen, he didn't have oxygen in the plane. So at 15,000 feet, you literally pass out. So they'd say one other story came out on top of the other ridiculous stories Mm -hmm. is that he simply passed out. Okay. And the plane just crashed. Okay, but they said it was ripped apart, not... Yeah, and at that, but to that point, they mm-hmm. said that when they went to discover the crash site, the thing was ripped to, right. to shreds. So if he just hit the ground, it would just be just, yeah, him augering into yeah. the ground, not yeah. stuff fluttering all over the place. So he hits... Uh, there, one story is the thing shot, you know, the thing shot out, shot at him mm-hmm. with something, a laser beam, I don't know. Uh, but uh, it's interesting. The Do you think you're being observed by the... There's a prime truck that's been parked in front of our house. Yeah, they're watching. Is this, how, <laughs> is this how the government... Yeah, they're concerned about us. I get a lot of hits from Los Alamos. And um, what's the other one? Where the just, Pentagon is. He was just typing away on his phone. I think he's recording he's just, on He's you. on Facebook. Yeah. And I get a lot of hits on... Uh, we get a lot of hits on um, Washington, D.C., Get a lot of hits from where the Pentagon, Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. 
You know, it's kind of weird. I think, like you said, you thought it was uh, automated. You thought it bots, bots or something, which I, I would expect to have a lot more, you know, results if they were bots. Far from solving the mystery, radar is only added to it. Sometimes invisible flying saucers have produced the type of radar echo that indicates a solid body moving at high speed. At other times, when the flying object itself was visible to the eye, it has produced the kind of indefinite image on the radar screen associated with ionized air or radioactive clouds. At other times, solid-looking saucers have given clear solid body echoes and have tracked at speeds of up to 20,000 miles per hour. That's really fast. Yeah, they're real quick. And it's like, well, how could anything survive in there? It could be drones. Maybe there's no nothing. Maybe there's no biologicals inside. Maybe there's yeah. just, you know, drones in there. Uh, the American papers have contained many such reports over the last few years, and the U.S. Air Force, it's a USAAF, what am I United saying? United States, oh, Army Air Force. Army Air Force, okay. Air Force, yeah. Has a, issued a special equipment to various units in an attempt to solve this mystery. And that's what it was called before, it was just the oh, okay. Air Force. In England, the RAF had, had, has had incidents, um, most of which occurred during large-scale official exercises. The two I shall now quote, as examples come from officers personally known to me. Reasons obliged me to withhold their names. One is a scientist and the other one is a son of a famous London editor and theater critic. So we don't want to talk up we don't oh, want no. them talking about it. Making the all the there dogs go. go crazy. One, the editor's son told me that while on duty in November nineteen fifty two he tracked a vast object flying in cloud from the River Humber in Yorkshire to the Thames Estuary. It covered the 200 miles in a matter of two and a quarter minutes. Wow, that's crazy. The other, the scientist, was in command of an East Coast radar post during Exercise Ardent. At 3.20 a.m., his attention was drawn to a blip on the radar screen which suggested a flight of 10 closely packed aircraft leaving the English coast and heading towards Holland. The incredible speed of these objects, or object, made direct measurement of their speed impossible. The calculations twice checked showed them to be shifting along. He loves his little... Yeah. He's got a thesaurus. At 2,100 miles per hour. Worse was in store. When they or it reached the Dutch coast, the screen went blank. The thing had physically disappeared, which even as a schoolboy knows... <coughs> even a schoolboy knows to be impossible. The scientist's explanation, which is the only explanation to our limited knowledge, is that the thing dematerialized, or rather translated itself into a higher octave of matter quite beyond our present comprehension, which is, and I put that in there, that, you know, it might be interdimensional, this might be one of those interdimensional situations, you know, or, you know, our radar just back then isn't just... Yeah, it wasn't. Sophisticated. It was new. Unfortunately, most scientists and other experts are not willing to be so broad-minded. Saucers offend them because they cannot be conveniently pigeonholed into what is known and accepted. From the time of Captain Mantell's tragic death to the present day, the experts have told us glibly one thing after another, contradiction following contradiction, until our heads, like the saucers, are spinning in the air. They're spinning. It's just what they're doing today. <laughs> just keep, just keep yeah. kicking the can down the road. Don't give us any answers. Treat us like four-year-olds. Just keep it up. They say that flying discs are the following. Small specks of dust before the eyes, which look like large objects far away. Mass hysteria. Not so much mass hysteria as collective illusion, says the Australian Institute of Applied Psychology, in a kindly attempt to soften the blow. Apparently is less ignoble. Ignoble. Ignoble to be suffering from collective illusion than from mass hysteria. Spots in front of the eyes, red blood corpuscles inside the eyes, cobwebs flying high, meteors, distant headlights, Venus, the Perseids, that's the meteor shower that occurs every August. Balloons, ionized air, unionized air, cold air, hot air causing refraction at levels just like hot air. I saved this one for you. Nuts says Dr. Menzel of Harvard University, an exclusive interview for an American magazine. Nuts, ejaculatory rather than vegetable, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Sex, say some progressive psychiatrists well 
up in their desire trauma. We thought sex would creep into it sooner or later. And lastly, from Russia, where because Stalin failed to invent them, they are a case of pure war-mongering psychosis, according to Professor Kukarkin of Moscow. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? So, we're coming up on an hour. Um, That was a lot better than the last time we did the... Yeah. We did this, and um, thanks everybody. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna go through this book. I, I do enjoy uh, Damsky's writing mm-hmm. and um, in, in us visiting the history of the phenomena. I think the people that have just picked up since the Senate hearings have just started wondering about what started it all. Mm-hmm. You know, might be interested in uh, hearing what's happening. So um, we're gonna wrap it up. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Alien Probe Podcast. We welcome comments, questions, or requests to alienprobepodcast at gmail.com. Visit us on Facebook. Check out our website at alienprobe.net, Twitter, and Instagram at alienprobepod. As a reminder, anybody that wants to come on as a guest would like to talk to you about this, you know, today's UFO situation or an experience, um, Hit us up on our uh, on our website, alienprobepodcast at gmail.com. Um, check us out. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, Deb, for joining me. Thank you. That was less a lot less painful than the last one we Yeah, did. the last one sucked. That's okay. <laughs> it has to happen once in a while. Watch the skies, everybody. And I've got the Apollo countdown. I'm sure you heard the Apollo countdown in the beginning. That's the uh, that's remembering Dr. Bill. <laughs> <laughs>